Hi, welcome to Trained. At Nike, we believe that greatness isn't born, it's trained. And that means more than just a workout. Each episode, we'll bring you conversations with leading experts in what we call the five facets of fitness. Movement, recovery, nutrition, mindset, and sleep. I'm Ryan Flaherty, Senior Director of Performance at Nike. I train some of the world's best athletes, like Russell Wilson, Brooks Kepka, and Saquon Barkley. Today, we're talking about mindset and how to stay motivated even when there's no competition. You're listening to Trained, presented by Nike. So many of us tie our identities to the things that we do, not to who we are. And so what happens when you stop doing that? Somebody defines themselves as a world-class athlete, but what happens when your career ends? Because I've got news for you, your career is gonna end. 100% sure it's gonna end. And by the way, that's for every single one of us. And so I think there's great value in defining ourselves by who we are, not what we do, because that is literally something that we can work to improve to the day we die, and it is literally something infinite. That's Simon Sinek organizational consultant and author of the best-selling book, Start With Why. When Simon and I sat down for our conversation, he introduced himself as an optimist, and it says a lot about him and his work. Simon has made a career out of helping people discover their why, the unique purpose that motivates them and use it to perform at their best and feel good about what they do. You might know Simon from one of his TED Talks about leadership and business. Leadership might not seem like it has a lot in common with training, But in Simon's analysis, there are a lot of similar factors like consistency, big picture vision, and purpose. Ultimately, Simon is fascinated by how people can become the best versions of themselves. And he's taken that interest and created a career where he can help millions of people get started by finding their why. I first learned about Simon's work through one of his TED Talks. It's about leadership and how good leaders inspire action. They do it by focusing on the why of what they do, not what they do. Simon talks primarily about business leaders and corporations. Now, this talk doesn't seem like it has any direct application to my life. As a coach and a trainer, I work independently. And while it is a business, I don't have a lot in common with the CEOs of large, publicly traded companies that Simon profiles. So at first, I wasn't really sure why this discussion stuck with me so much. What it comes down to is that Simon emphasizes finding a why as the first step to performance. Finding and then focusing on your why is something I've always talked about with my athletes and even on the show. Sarah Sigmund's daughter was on earlier this year, and we talked about how much that why has been a part of her success. Your why isn't an identity, say like a salesperson or guitar player. It's something you do. I train athletes, and I do this because I want people to be the best version of themselves and perform at their highest levels without getting injured. Training and business leadership each have images that are out of sync with what it takes to achieve success. When people think of serious training, they imagine a coach yelling at people to flip tires as fast as humanly possible. In the same vein, a high-performing CEO conjures up a person who's aggressive, cutthroat, and puts profit for the sake of profit above their employees. But the reality is it's totally different. That's because success in any sphere takes consistent, measured effort. You can't exhaust yourself into success. If you focus on your what as an identity, like I'm someone who runs 5Ks, you'll find yourself contorting your training into that identity and enjoying it less. Instead, frame your training as, I run to unwind and challenge myself, and I do 5Ks when I have time to enjoy them. 
The difference between what and why is powerful. It's a difference between giving up and going after your goal. That might sound impossibly lofty, and though Simon calls himself an optimist, he isn't unrealistic. In fact, he says the best way to set and achieve goals is maybe to set them low. Because when you're focused on your why, just starting is enough. So now, let's get to the interview. Well, I'm excited about this. I'm a big fan of your work. So thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. So I'd love to just get into it. I want to talk about, first and foremost, how did you get into this field? I mean, I know you're an author, you're a consultant to a lot of organizations. Obviously, most people will know you from your TED Talks. How did you get started in this field? My career is an accident. Um, I was in marketing, and uh, I fell out of love with my own work. And it caused me a great deal of stress because superficially my life was good. I had a good job. I made an okay living. I did, you know, we did good. Our company did great work for our clients and they were very happy, but I didn't want to wake up and do it again. And I kept it to myself because I was embarrassed, you know, Mm. like, oh, woe is me. You know, I don't want to do this great job. It ended up sort of eating me, eating at me and gnawing at me. And it got worse and worse and worse. And I'd say I came, I was probably depressed. um, And I was very lucky. There was a... a confluence of events. Um, a friend of mine came to me and said, I'm worried about you. I came clean and said, I told her how I felt. And that energy released in me to, instead of lying, hiding and faking every day, pretending that I was happier, more successful and more in control than I actually felt, I could take all of that energy mm-hmm. to find a solution. And the solution that I found was this thing called the why that completely changed the way I view my life and live my life. It was so powerful. I shared it with my friends. My friends started making crazy life changes themselves, invited me to share it with their friends. I would literally go to someone's apartment in New York City and talk about this thing called the why <laughs> to, to a group of people sitting on the floor. And, you know, people just kept asking me about it. And I just kept saying yes. That's amazing. Now, for people who may not have seen your TED Talks or heard you speak or read any of your books yet, how would you define the why and and how did you explain it in the early days? So every single one of us knows what we do. These are the, the jobs we perform, the things we sell, the things we do. Some of us know how we do what we do. These are the things that we think make us stand out from the crowd, our strengths. And Unfortunately, very few of us can clearly articulate why we do what we do. I don't mean to make money or get a promotion. Those are results. I mean, why do we get out of bed in the morning? What's mm-hmm. your purpose? What's your cause? What's your belief? For people who are listening and want to really help find their why, because um, I would love to know this personally because of the athletes I've worked with, I've, I've hit some roadblocks in some of this. When you're, at, when you're asking them to dig deep and figure out really why they're doing what they're doing, so what is their, their personal why? What are some suggestions you'd give to people to help really lock in on what that is? So our why is fully formed by the time we're sort of in our mid to late teens, right? Fully formed. And it doesn't change. You, cannot, you can only have one why and, it, and it's, it lasts your whole life and it never, ever changes. So to discover your why is about pattern recognition. It's about going through the times in your life where everything naturally sort of went like you were in the flow or everything you did t- turned to gold. Like all of, the, all of those, you know, cliches, you know. Just everything worked out perfectly. Identify those times and what you'll discover is patterns. And that pattern is, is governed by the, by the why. I can give you a fun little exercise that you can do with people that gets you in the ballpark. Yeah, please. Um, th- think of someone you love, a friend. An, uh, you can't do this with spouses or girlfriends, boyfriends, or brothers or sisters because the relationships are too close. But think of a close friend, someone you love, someone if they called you at 3 o'clock in the morning, you'd absolutely take the call. And with 100% confidence, you know that they would take your call at 3 o'clock in the morning. And go to those people, the people you love, and ask them this question. Why are we friends? 
And they're going to look at you like you have 12 heads because it's hard for them to put into words the feeling that they have towards you. And they're going to start saying, I don't know. It's not that they don't know. It's the part of the brain that controls those feelings, doesn't control language. And so they struggle to put it into words. And again, don't ask the question, why anymore? You say, come on, what is it about me? What specifically is it about me that I know that you would be there for me no matter what? And they'll start describing you. They'll hem in the hub like, I don't know. You're smart. You're funny. I trust you. I can rely on you. And you have to play devil's advocate. That's the definition of a friend. What is it specifically about me that I know you'd be there for me no matter what? And they'll continue to describe you and you say, good, that's the definition of a close friend. You have that with other people too. What is it about me specifically? You just keep, and they're going to hate you for it. (laughs) Eventually they'll give up and they'll stop describing you and they'll start describing you themselves. And this is what my friend said to me. I did the exercise and my friend said to me, Simon, I don't know. All I know is that I can sit in a room with you. I don't even have to talk to you and I'll feel inspired. And I got goosebumps. In fact, I'm getting them right now. In other words, they put into words the real value I have in their lives. And that value I have in their lives is my why. Because it's the thing that I give to the world and it's the thing that people value in me. So they will say something about themselves and you will have an emotional response. You'll get goosebumps or you'll well up with tears. And ironically, well, not so ironically, but amazingly, If you do this with multiple friends, they'll all give you about the same answer. They may even give you the exact same answer. may not give you the exact language, but it'll get you very, very close, and it works really well. What is the one thing that really stands out to you is why it's so important that people really kind of tap into this and figure this out for themselves? Well, I think there are three things that every human being wants, regardless of where we live, you know, regardless of culture. Every single human being on the planet wants to feel safe. Um, We all want to feel a part of something bigger than ourselves. Uh, and we all want to be able to provide for ourselves and our families. Every human being wants that on the planet. And um, all of the things that I write about and talk about are steps along the way, how to, how to get those things, um, how to feel that way. Uh, and, and I think, unfortunately, we, work in a, we live and work in a world that makes it more complicated. We've over-indexed on finite over infinite. We've over-indexed on what before why. We've over-indexed on me before others. And, and it creates mm-hmm. problems. In the short term, it's fine. Um, but over the course of time, it affects uh, long-term performance. It damages organizations. It damages cultures. But it also hurts our health. Uh, and it makes us more stressed, and it can affect our physical health. Yeah. You make a comment about feeling safe, and, and it's not something you hear all that often. People talk a lot about inspiration or fulfillment, but feeling safe is not something you hear as often as I think you should. Can you just elaborate a little bit on why feeling safe is, is, is one of the key tenets you've spoken about? We are, human beings are, 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 are social animals. We're crap by ourselves. You know, um, we're not that strong by ourselves and we can't solve complex problems by ourselves. But in groups, we're remarkable. On teams, we're amazing. Even an individual athlete has coaches and people who support them and nobody succeeds alone. It doesn't exist. And so as tribal animals, as social animals, the way we thrive is is by creating strong, close, trusting relationships, deep, meaningful relationships. Uh, it creates a sense of psychological safety, but it also creates actual safety. I mean, you can imagine our ancestors thousands of years ago living on the plains and the savannas. If we didn't trust each other, that means we couldn't go to bed at night because that means we'd have to keep an eye open for danger, you know, from wild animals or each other. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the only way we can survive is is through trust. The only way we can thrive is with trust. This is why trust matters. It, it's it trust is what makes us feel safe. Psychological safety is the thing that gives us the courage to do difficult things, to take risks. You know, courage is not some deep internal thing. Nobody's born self-confident. You know, nobody's born with courage. You know, we, we, we learn self-confidence from, from our parents and our friends and our teachers. And so when mm-hmm. we have someone in our lives that says, I got your back, or I believe in you, or you got to do this, it's the right thing to do, that's what gives us courage. It's these relationships. So safety, yeah. feeling safe is not a nice to have. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a biological, anthropological necessity. And the fact that we go to work and don't feel safe at work the fact that we go to work and, and don't have psychological safety, that we, we don't feel that our leaders have our backs, we don't feel like our colleagues have our backs, actually does serious damage to our, our, our psychological well-being and our actual health, not to mention the fact our performance. Absolutely. So there's great irony in all of this, you know. One thing that I was taught at an early age, luckily, was to always think through scenarios of, okay, so imagine the worst case scenario happens and you think through that all the way to the end and you're going, oh, is it really that bad? And no, it isn't that bad. So I don't need to stress that much about it because even if the worst thing happens, I'm still okay. I'm still alive. For a lot of people who are really dealing with this and aren't given the tools, what would you recommend are the first you know, one or two things they can do to start to really kind of change that their brain chemistry around stress and, and anxiety? So there's a very, very, very simple answer. Take care of others. Take care of the others in your life, right? This is, it's, we are social animals and deep, meaningful relationships matter more than anything else. The scenario you offer does help, but the problem is it's rational. And then that night you get into bed and your mind starts playing tricks and you start having a narrative and it all goes out the window, you know, and you can tell yourself as many stories as you want. The feelings don't go away. But to have somebody in your life that says, I got your back. I love you. I'm here no matter what. So when something goes wrong, they hug us. I mean, you know this as a, as a coach and as an athlete. When something goes horribly wrong, what do you do? You hug your athlete. You know, it releases oxytocin. It makes them feel safe. That's what it does. It makes them feel like they're not alone. We're social animals. Mm. We need each other. The way that we will find that safety, the way that we will build that confidence, ironically, is by giving to others is by giving to others. Mm, coaches, so coaches, yeah. think about a coach. Coaches are on the sidelines. They're not competing. And think about the joy that you have when your team comes together and solves their own problems. Think about the intense joy when your athlete wins because you spent your mm-hmm. life sacrificing in service to these other human beings. And when they achieve, the joy you experience is as great or greater than they could achieve themselves. Like a parent, when a parent sits in the audience and their kid graduates school, they are absolutely glowing. They've never felt prouder because all the sacrifice all of a sudden was worth it. And that intense mm. joy of seeing someone we love succeed or discover something, or help another human being, that's what service is all about. No doubt. Yeah, no, that's that's powerful. I, yeah, servant leadership. I mean, that's something I've I've really focused on for a long time. I think that's that that's amazing. And so, um, for those who are struggling, sticking to their diet or sticking to like this shift in lifestyle for them, where they're just trying to just get healthier, they just want to live a healthier life, and turn be happier. 
would would you say that so serve in, in helping someone else do that will help them along their path exactly. if they're struggling? Exactly. If you're struggling to to, to lose weight, help somebody else lose weight. If you're struggling to get out Love and it. go for a run, help somebody else get out and go for a run. If you're struggling to get out of bed and go to the gym, help someone else get out of bed and go to the gym. That's exactly right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Simon will break down the nature of infinite and finite games and how this perspective can help you set realistic goals. If you're a trainer, join a community of trainers looking to make fitness better for everyone. Learn from leading experts in movement, recovery, mindset, nutrition, and sleep. And get an exclusive 30% discount on Nike gear. Apply at nike.com slash ntcpro. Your book right now, The Infinite Game, you know, you talk about infinite versus finite games. Can you give a few examples of each? Yeah, sure. So James Carr, a, 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 a philosopher who used to teach at NYU in 1986, wrote a little book called Finite and Infinite Games that he perfectly articulated the definition of these, of these two games. He said, if you have at least one competitor, a game exists. And there are two types of games. There are finite games and there are infinite games. A finite game is defined as known players, fixed rules, and an agreed-upon objective, right? Baseball. And the object is to win. Mm -hmm. And in finite games, there's always a beginning, middle, and an end. Infinite games, there are known and unknown players. The rules are changeable, which means you can play however you want. And the objective is to keep playing, to perpetuate the game. And if you think about it, we are players in infinite games every day of our lives. You know, there's no such thing as being number one in your relationships. There's no such thing as winning global politics. And there's definitely no such thing as winning business or being the winner of life, right? <laughs> right? And so the problem is, is when we show up in an infinite game with a finite mindset, if you're trying to be number one, be the best or beat your competition in a game that has no finish line, there's a few very predictable and consistent outcomes. The decline of trust, the decline of cooperation, and the decline of innovation, all of which weaken the relationship, relationships weaken the organization and, and could lead to the eventual demise of the organization. Mm. So we have to play for the game we're actually in. And that's what I wrote about, which is if we are to be players in these infinite games, games that have no finish lines, then how do we adjust our mindset so that we can play in the infinite game? So for an athlete, you can win a game, but you don't win life just by winning lots of games. Right. And so, yes, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with finite games. There's nothing wrong with metrics. The purpose of the infinite game is they provide context for all those finite games. We're not winning for the sake of winning. We're winning to advance a cause greater than ourselves, but we have to know what that cause is, and it has to be for the service of others. Yeah, that's that's really insightful. I think I've deal, dealt with this with a lot of athletes because I think athletes will take the mindset that they take into competition, but then they really struggle with the consistency of maintaining a positive mindset outside of the game. And mm -hmm. I think that's where a lot of times frustrations or obstacles can kind of really unravel them in some ways, because I don't think they can understand how to separate the two. How, how can you explain the differences between an infinite mindset and a finite mindset? So a finite mindset is nothing more than drive to win. That's all it is, right? A finite yeah. mindset likes to exert control 
and is afraid of surprises. A finite mindset does not like uncertainty. They like to control as many of the factors as possible because the more that I can control, the more it leads to the, uh, a potential that I can win the game, right? Yeah. An infinite mindset embraces uncertainty and embraces surprises because it finds opportunity in surprise. It finds opportunity in uncertainty and it recognizes that any wins or losses that we enjoy or suffer in the game is just part of the game. And the objective is not winning, the objective is to play. In a finite game, the goal is to beat the others. In an infinite game, the goal is simply to outdo ourselves, that the only true competitor is ourselves. How do I become a better person this year than I was last year? How do I become a better athlete today than I was yesterday? It's about me. But the goal, the goal is to love the play, to enjoy the game, to derive. I, I spoke to an Olympic athlete who never, ever, ever had the opportunity to medal. They, they went to the Olympics twice and were eliminated after the first round both times. And they said that they're a healthier person because they knew they could never medal. So they, they never showed up to win. They showed up for the love of the sport. Oh, the joy, the joy is so different. These yeah. little countries that have like no money invested in their Olympic teams, they have so much joy in, in, in their experience and they come in 13th in the Olympics and they look like they got gold. It's because they never showed up mm -hmm. to win. They showed up for the joy of the game. No doubt. And I think yeah, it's also like harkens back to the idea of, you know, skidding your mind and uh, view off of the result and outcome and just focusing on the process. But to love the process, it means to find the joy again. I mean, you have to find the joy in everything you do. And I think for people listening, this is super relevant given the fact that, you know, your health and wellness, your training, is, yeah. it's an infinite game. You're never going to win it. And I think why people struggle so much is because they think that because I didn't lose those 10 pounds in the two weeks, oh, I just not, you know, I'm going to give up rather than just right. saying like, find what you love to do. I think that number one thing I talk to people outside of athletes that I, that I talk about when it comes to health and wellness or training is the number one thing you got to do is find something that you love to do. So if you just love to play basketball, that is your workout. Every day yeah. you're going to go out and you're going to play basketball and have so much fun doing it because exactly. ultimately it's doing the same thing as, you know, a really hard weight training session is. But if you hate that, you're never going to want to come back and do it again. And so I love I love this because this really helps people view their training, you know, health journey very different. It's infinite. Well, they're also missing the point of the lifestyle, right? So, okay, I missed my health goal. I didn't lose the amount of weight that I wanted to lose by the time frame that I wanted to lose it in. But all of the things that I was doing to get there have made me a healthier person. I am way healthier now, even though I missed my goal, than I was when I wasn't working to achieve that goal. In other words, the context, right. the context, the infinite component of this finite pursuit was that the reality is, yes, I want to lose a certain amount of weight by a certain date. But in reality, the infinite context, I just want to be healthier. Well, mm. that's exactly what's happened. And if I just stick to that health regime, I will hit the goal a little later. It's going to hit. So I'll give you a personal story, right? I'm going to do 20 push-ups every night before I go to bed. So that means if I do 18 and I, and I crap out, I've now failed. I've now let myself down, right? And so what ended up happening yeah. is I kept crapping out. And so I stopped because I don't like feeling like a failure, right? So I read this article <laughs> about setting stupidly low goals and I changed it. I'm going to do one push-up every night before bed. That was my goal. Can, can I do 20? And someone's like, ugh, I don't feel like it. And I wouldn't do it. But I can like, can I do one? I'm like, yeah, I can do one. So I'd brush my teeth, I'd get down, I'd do one. And then I do two, and then I do three, and then I do four. And I feel like a freaking, you know, God, because I'm way above my goal, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so every day I'm feeling like king and seeing how far I can go. But the point is I never changed the goal. 
the goal always stayed low because I could always, I could, and every time I would beat the goal, I'd feel, and it incentivized me to keep going, keep going, because then I'd hit like 24, then it'd be like 30. I'm like doing 30 every night, and I'm feeling like I'm way above my target, and I felt like a king. But the point was, that low goal helped me establish the discipline of getting down and doing some push-ups every night. What does it mean for someone to look at something not as competition? What's the long-term impact of that on somebody's ability to reach their goals by them not looking at things always as competition, like in finite games? If we view everybody in our lives, our colleagues at work, we view them as competition. And leaders make this big mistake where they create internal competition because they think it drives performance. It doesn't. All it does is destroy trust. And it, it creates backstabbing and all of this horrible stuff. But we can absolutely have worthy rivals at work. Our colleagues are not our competition, but competitors are there to be beaten, right? They're only valuable in, in, a, in a finite game. But an infinite game where there's no finish line, you can have worthy rivals where their strengths reveal to us our weaknesses. And when those weaknesses are revealed, instead of taking all that uncomfortable energy and turning it into a competitive spirit, we turn it into a self-improvement spirit. Because remember, the only true competitor in an infinite game is ourselves. Yeah. So Simon, you, you introduced yourself as an optimist. Can you, can you talk through that a bit of how you've, how you've come to that and, and how you live that out? So one of the things that I learned a bunch of years ago is that so many of us tie our identities to the things that we do, not to who we are. And so what happens when you stop doing that? Yeah. Somebody defines themselves as a world-class athlete. Well, what happens when your career ends? Because I've got news for you. Your career is going to end. 100% sure it's going <laughs> to end. And by the way, that's yes. for every single one of us. You know, your job may change. You may lose your job voluntary or in, voluntarily or involuntarily. You may s decide to make a career change or you may just retire. And I see this so often where some high-flying CEO is no longer CEO because they've retired and literally they have an identity crisis because they spent their entire lives defining themselves as what they did. And so I became deathly afraid of defining myself by what I did. So what happens if I say I'm an author and I never write another book? Now I'm living on like something I did <laughs> in the past. You know, what happens if you say you're an athlete yeah. and you're not an athlete anymore? Yeah. You know? What comes first is who I am. What comes second is what I do to advance who I am. Um, and so I think there's great value in defining ourselves by who we are, not what we do, because that is literally something that we can work to improve to the day we die, and it is literally something infinite. Thank you, Simon. Since I've known we were going to have you on the show, I've been looking forward to this conversation. So thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you so much, and, and thank you for giving me a, a platform to share my ideas. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I love Simon's take on training as an infinite game. And it's always great to talk to someone who can talk about the history of these ideas. And there's one thing they mentioned that I think we can all recognize. I liked what Simon had to say about trying to do 20 push-ups. It's such a clear example of what happens when you're caught up in the enthusiasm of a goal. It's easy to say something like, I will do 20 push-ups before bed, instead of something more realistic like just doing one. And when you focus on the outcome like that, you put pressure on yourself to stick to it exactly, and any deviation means failure. Focusing on the outcome is playing the finite game. But being a better version of yourself is infinite. Focusing on the process and your why is a genuine approach that will bring more lasting change because it's based on who you are at your core. So revisit a goal and see how it connects to your why. If you're not sure of your why, there's one foundational why that we all share, connection to others. Simon said it several times that we're social animals, and he recommended helping others as a basic one. 
Bringing another person into your fitness journey is a great way to make it feel infinite in the most positive way because you're not alone. So today, invite someone to try a new workout class with you, cook a healthy meal, or take an active recovery day. You'll feel exactly why it's important as you do it. Trained is produced by Nike Training Club. If you're looking to take your training to the next level, check out the Nike Training Club app. In it, you'll find holistic guidance and free workouts designed by Nike experts. Or go even further with our premium subscription service, NTC Premium, at $14.99 a month, available now in the U.S. With NTC Premium, you can get guidance from start to finish with programs designed and led by Nike Master Trainers, plus immersive guided workouts and in-depth nutrition and wellness content. Go check it out. That's Nike Training Club app, available on both Android and iOS. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with Dr. Joel Kahn, a cardiologist and advocate for plant-based diets. Join us for a conversation about nutrition, performance, and longevity. This is Trained. Talk to you soon. Consult your doctor before engaging in an exercise program of any kind, especially if you have a medical condition. Use good judgment and common sense about your own fitness level and ability when engaging in a training program. If something doesn't feel right, stop immediately and seek medical attention as necessary.